I don't know about you. It just makes me happy. And then the picture with the guy with the mustache really just throws me over the edge. I uh, really want a mustache, but my wife, well, she claims that she wouldn't acknowledge me in public if I ever grow one. And so uh, we can talk about starting that petition and movement later. Um, right now, I like her claiming me in public. So my name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. I want to welcome you to Encounter Church. Today, we start a new series and uh, what that bumper is meant to even kind of hint at is the series isn't so much about what your family looks like. It's not about the family description, right? And there's just a series of just random shots. And even this week, um, my daughter, I guess, knowing that I was speaking about this, said, let me go ahead and provide you with an illustration, Father. And I said, thank you. And she actually didn't. She just said, she came in one day and um, said, hey, I want to put a, I, I drew this picture and she stuck it on the wall in the bathroom, and so it's just been hanging out in the bathroom. And it's here's a family picture, and according to my four-year-old, this is what our family looks like. Um, I am the big-headed one in the middle, and um, just to give you a little bit of a, to kind of help you unpack what's happening here, um, I think those are ears. I'm not 100% sure, but my daughter is on the right. She's the two-tone one. She's the creative-looking one. She's got it, got it going on already as a four-year-old. But I think what this gives me a picture of is a, a picture of our ranking inside of our household because that's my wife on top, and then I, I'm there almost level with her. And so I think it's probably giving me an insight to how she views me because I know that I'm not the favorite one. Um, and, and when we talk about this idea of future family, it's not just like family descriptions of your past. Like here's an awkward family photo, right? Um, that we all have these pictures that when we start dating or our friends come and meet our parents, um, sometimes, unfortunately, these things creep out and then you're deeply embarrassed because you're like, that was cool back then, I promise, right? No matter what they tell you, that was hip then. Um, but this series isn't about that. This series is about family dynamics, because it's the dynamics, not the description of the family that makes the impact. So the same picture actually gives us a glimpse of family dynamics. If you were to zoom out, what you find is um, grandpa in the corner. This picture, what makes this even better is uh, this, according to the person who posted this on awkwardfamilyphotos.com, is uh, this is Easter morning as they're getting ready for church, and grandpa is setting up for church celebration by pounding his first beer of the day in the corner. And so what you see here is a picture of the series, that there is a dynamic that we all have and that we've all come out in our families, that we all came from somewhere and someone. And those things that we experience, those memories that we have, those interplay of relationships, of how we dealt with conflict, how we dealt with finances, how we had family traditions, all of those things those dynamics, that family culture became an operating system that was downloaded into us. And that we operate into that operating system and that we come out of our family dynamic in our past and we move into a family dynamic in our present. And it's not just our family dynamic because I recognize that there are across the spectrum, there are some who are single in this room, there are some who are married, there are some who are processing through a divorce, there are some who just aren't even sure. That we have full, full kind of spectrum. And the, these dynamics aren't just at play in our present families, they creep into our workplace. They creep into our personal relationships and our friendships. They even influence and define how we will date and how we engage with people and what our standards are. 
that these family dynamics are critical. And if we want to move into a future with a family, we have to make sure we've processed our family from our past. And many of us can feel confined and trapped about what we've come out of, what the pattern that we've kind of had downloaded into us that we just think is the norm. And then what happens is that we start to interact with other humans who came out of different dynamics and there starts to kind of, in the heat and the cold, a storm front starts to brew. And whether that's in friendships, whether that's in the workplace where you've got someone who is very much conflict-oriented and you came from a passive-aggressive home, or whether that's in your current relationship with your spouse right now. And so the question what I want to even dive into this morning is how do we process our family dynamics and how do we, can we even control our family dynamics? And today what I want to do is kind of an aggressive thing. I'm going to go ahead and give you a disclaimer. I want to tackle 50 years worth of a family story from the Bible. And I'm going to do that hopefully with the precision of a ninja working through the passages and working through the storyline because this is maybe a, a family that you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about processing or maybe you've never even heard of them. And, but what I want to do is by looking at their storyline, by looking at multiple generations, what I think we can see is we can get a glimpse into what shapes our family dynamics that bleeds into our professional and personal dynamics, but then also look at how do we begin to shape our future family and the dynamics that will control, gauge, and dictate it. Um, the story that I want to process through, and especially for Americans, here's where it's helpful, because as Americans, we tend to be very much um, present generation oriented. Not all, not all Americans, but the average American tends to, when they think family, they immediately think like the spouse, the kids, the, so the aunts, uncles, grandparents, extended family may not immediately come into your like mental processing when you think family. It's the extended family. But for many around the world, for most cultures around the world, in fact, and in fact, in the ancient Middle East context where we're going to read from today, family was everyone. A lot of times families lived in the house or the tent or a collection of tents or huts together. And so you would have multiple, multiple generations all kind of living in the same area. And that help to really form and forge and, and give us a glimpse of how things that happened 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago is still impacting you today. That there are things, that, there are stories your great-grandparents told your grandparents that are still influencing your life today. And it's harder to see in American culture, but it's really clear when we look at the story of Jacob. And so I wanna, I'm going to Go ahead and encourage you. The sermon notes in the Encounter Church app is probably the best way to follow along with me. Okay, if, if you get overwhelmed by a lot of content, I'm going to tell it like a story so that you don't have to like kind of read the verse and follow along. But all of the sermon notes have every passage I'm going to point to throughout the morning. And I would encourage you, maybe even the course of this week, because you're going to be like, this is straight up crazy, to, to encourage you to read it. These people aren't normal. Okay, this is, this is like soap opera, like, uh, you know, Grey's Anatomy kind of drama stuff. Like, people could make money writing books about what these people have done. And so I encourage you to process through it because um, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. Okay, and Abraham's one of the most famous religious figures on planet Earth. Okay, Abraham is one of those guys that he is directly or indirectly the, uh, like, 
heritage, physically or spiritually, of over 4 billion people on planet Earth today. Abraham is considered by the Jewish people to be the first ever Jew. The first time the word Jew or Hebrew gets used is used regarding Abraham by God himself. And they trace their direct spiritual lineage back to him. You have another large group of 1.6 billion people called Muslims around the world who trace their direct lineage back to Abraham. Because Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And that these two sons, one produces the Jewish nation and one produces what is known as the, the Muslim people. And then indirectly, Christians point back to Abraham as the spiritual example when God promises things to Abraham. So four billion people point themselves and orient their religious and their spiritual views out of this one man named Abraham. Now, Abraham has a grandson named Jacob. And Jacob is an interesting kind of character, and it's his story and the story of his sons that I want us to process through this morning. You see, Jacob has 12 sons, which is a lot of children, first of all, right? For any of you that have more than three, you understand that names start to kind of get a little ambiguous at, at number three to four. And so imagine having 12. He has 12 sons, and to even make matters worse, he has multiple wives. And if that could not be any more complicated, he actually has a favorite wife, which I imagine never went over well, right? I mean, <laughs> like, that's a horrible idea. And so he has a favorite wife, and in the midst of this crazy family dynamic, there starts to be some intense sibling, sibling kind of rivalry to the point of the storyline that I want to pick up this morning, that in Genesis 37, you hear this picture and this snapshot of the brothers' relationships with one another. It says that Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son, and then it lists multiple wives, of his father, and he had brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, whose name's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, to his favorite wife, might I add, and he had made him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Verse 17, we'll jump into that. They had moved on from here, one location, to the other because the father said Joseph I trust you you're my favorite son your brothers are crazy and are always up to no good I want you to go check in on them again and so Joseph goes and as as he goes to the place where they're supposed to be where their father had told them to go the man there says um, they've moved on I heard them say let's go to Dothan it's a neighboring town so Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan but they saw him in the distance probably because he was wearing a bright shiny coat because he was the favorite son made by his father, right? And so they're like, oh, here comes the favorite one. In fact, they say, oh, here comes the dreamer. They said to one another, come, let's kill him and throw him into one of his cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. If you happen to have sons, multiple sons, as crazy as they may seem, you've never walked in on a few of them transpiring this creative conspiracy creating this scheme of how to murder the other one. And this is what happens here, is that Jacob 
with his, with his multiple sons, it's gotten so intense, the, the, the rivalry, the favoritism has gotten so kind of ingrained and so negative that literally a, a group of ten of them start to devise a scheme to murder Joseph. And the reason they want to murder Joseph is because Joseph's the favorite one. And it's not just because I'm sure if you have a sibling, you've probably said, oh, my parents have a favorite one, right? We, you probably, if you're, if you're the favorite one, then you've never said that because you would never own it. If you're a sibling who it's not you, then you're like, no, I know who the favorite one is, right? And, and so th this like, idea of that's the favorite child has gotten to a point that he's not just like subtle underneath dynamics. This is, here's a special robe. None of your other brothers get it because I love you more. And they're like, let's kill him and let's use the robe to trick our father. And he'll never know. And we step into this family dynamic and it's really easy to say, what in the world? This is so dysfunctional. It's so crazy. But yet, here's what's interesting. That's Genesis 37, which is the storyline of Jacob's son. I want to give you another storyline. The same story, but a little bit previous than this moment. In Genesis 27, when Jacob is growing up, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, Esau answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow, and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me so that I might give you a blessing before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare some tasty food to eat so that I might give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he might give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go. Right, so here's something interesting. What happens with Jacob's sons happened to Jacob. Favoritism. Right? Deceit. He's the son. He's the favorite son of his mom. Who enters into a scheme with him to rob the contractual blessing from his brother. And they orchestrate this very elaborate plan to do so. So what you see happening in the storyline of Jacob's sons happened in the storyline of Jacob with his parents too. And here's the thing that when you, when you compare the fact that decades apart, here's this family dynamic, what you realize is that there is a default operational system that we can carry into our future family. And you see it with Jacob bringing it in to his family with his sons. This idea of favorite child and deceit and manipulation wasn't new to his sons. They had watched it in their father and heard the stories 
from their father about what had happened. You see, I think what happens with the word default, the reason that I, I want to call it default is that default actually has this interesting history. I love words, and I, I actually, for fun, look up where words come from, okay? I, I, get, I probably need counseling. But here's what's fascinating about the word default. The word default literally means to fail. That's why one of the ways that it gets used is, well, they defaulted on their mortgage. They failed to pay. Well, operational systems, computer software, use the word default for, in a similar kind of stream of thought for their, their camp and their, like, their world and their discipline. When they established this idea, a default should be the assumed setting where someone fails to choose a new one. And because they failed to choose a new one, they default to the existing one. That a default is, by its very literal nature, a failure to choose. But here's the thing about a default. A failure to choose is still choosing. You just choose what's ever there. And for Jacob's sons, what was there was sibling animosity, deceit, manipulation, deception, and internal strife and hatred among siblings. They failed to choose, and so what they got was what was already there. And that's what you see play out in the, the life. That's the first source of family dynamics is our default setting. The things we bring in to our families that we, fell, that we failed to change or choose an alternative from our past. Now, the good thing for most of us, most of the time, is that we bring in a lot of good things from our past. Right? That there are things about your family, there are family traditions that really are genuinely a treasure to you. You think about vacations, places you visited, whether it was the mountains or whether it was the beach or whether it was summers at the Cape, right? There are certain things about growing up with your family that you bring and you don't want to change. You haven't thought about changing it, it's just there. But the problem with operating on the default setting is that by doing default, you never choose or even become aware of alternatives because there are other things we bring into our family dynamics and into our professional dynamics that we probably should think about changing. So, for example, if you grew up in a house that the way conflict was managed or dealt with was by whoever could get the loudest, then guess what your default relational family future dynamic looks like. Well, when there's an argument, it's whoever's going to be loudest. Well, what happens if you get paired with someone whose family dynamic was passive-aggressive? That's three years off from needing a counselor. Or five, seven, ten years off from potentially destroying your relationship. But the reason that this default is important for us to be aware of it is because if we don't replace it, we repeat it. And that's what happens. Jacob never replaces those dynamics. And his sons repeat it. And so let's be aware of those things. Of, and reflecting on questions of like, well, how, how did finances get managed in my household growing up? I mean, even practical. I'm grateful that my wife didn't grow up in a household where she watched her dad have to repair things. And that sounds silly, but 
Something as simple as growing up in a house where her dad did all the repairs would have probably been a default setting for her going into our relationship where she assumed that I repaired things. But I got to be honest with you, I am not a person who repairs things. I am a person who's gifted at breaking things so that they can be repaired. That's my gift mix. I can break things really, really well. And if I had to repair something, it's going to be Google or Angie's List. Not me getting in there and getting dirty or watching a YouTube video and looking really confused at how in the world do you do that? But what's funny is that those little subtle things, we bring them to the table, don't we, in our default setting. And it's not just from our family. It can even apply to previous work experiences. If you worked in a place where it was silo, where you keep your head down, you don't disrupt anything to make it better, and that's what you learn, that becomes your default work setting, then guess what? It plays into your next job. Because if you fail to replace, you repeat. It's why, as crazy as this may seem, my first ever job um, was at Walmart. They hired 15-year-olds at the time, and I wanted a car, and so they were the only place in town that would hire me, so I got a job at Walmart. And while that may be one of those things where I look like I fed into the corporate greed machine, today, at the time, it was incredible because um, the original founder was still in, still in control of the company, and I learned this foundational rule. And one of my first ever lessons at Walmart was called the 10-foot rule. If someone ever gets within 10 feet of you, you start smiling and you walk towards them. And this 10-foot rule was beat into me. Well, every single job I've ever had since, that's been my default. And even when people aren't smiling, I can't help it. It's like I have this invisible radar. And to this day, like, no joke, if I'm at Walmart, even if I'm traveling around the nation and I'm at Walmart, people will walk up to me and ask me where to find laundry detergent. Because when they get within 10 feet of me, I start smiling at them and make eye contact. And my wife and my friends have come around the corner on an aisle and have seen me helping people before. And they're just like, what is it with you in this place? And I'm like, I can't help it. It's my default. I smile. Can I help you today? But we bring defaults into our dynamics. And if we don't replace them, we repeat them. And there's this interesting thing about Joseph's storyline. So Joseph, with his brothers, they, instead of killing him, they divine and just, just kind of designed this scheme that's even better. They said, well, it, murder might be a little intense. So I've got a better idea. Let's sell him as a slave and then lie to our father. So they capture Joseph. They sell him to a um, slave trader headed to Egypt. They take his coat home and say, Father, he's dead. We found blood all over it. I guess an animal killed him. Because while it may not work as a child to tell your teacher a dog ate your homework, it actually worked in the ancient days to tell a parent that an animal ate your child. Okay? And so, dad, an animal ate them. Father grieves. Well, the storyline progresses. And over 20 years, Joseph, he's taken to Egypt. He's sold as a slave. He ends up working for a man named Potiphar, who is a pretty high-ranking Jewish official, 
Because Joseph is articulate, because he's smart, because there just seems to be this God's with him and that whatever he does seems to work, he ends up attracting attention he shouldn't and then allegations are made that are false that throw him in prison for years. But somehow in the miraculous storyline, I would encourage you to read it because it's an incredible story. But in the, in the midst of the storyline of Joseph, he goes from being a slave to second in command of Egypt. It's incredible. And in the midst of that storyline, Joseph has this really weird moment. See, as second in command, he leads the nation of Egypt through a famine. But he does it by preparing for the famine in advance and does so in such an incredible way that the nations around Egypt hear that Egypt has food when nobody else in the Middle East region does. And so what happens is his brothers, who have not seen him for 20 years, hear that there's food in Egypt and they travel together to Egypt to purchase food. And guess who they find themselves in front of? Joseph. They don't recognize him. When they sold him in the slave, he was a teenager. And now he's a grown man, and he looks like Egyptian royalty. And they're all there. But guess what? Joseph hasn't forgotten them. And he knows who they are. And Joseph, instead of doing what all of us would want to do, be like, all right, it's on now. You know, arrest them. I mean, right? That's what we would do. Oh, Payback is finally happening. Joseph does something incredible. Genesis 50, 19 and 20, he says, But Joseph said to them, his brothers, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. And he goes on in verse 21. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You have to let the weight of that. You're looking at the brothers who sold you into slavery and your response to them is, I'm going to take care of you. What you meant to disarm, what you meant to destroy, God used for good. In the midst of preparation for this message, one of the things that struck me is that you see a very clear family dynamic at play. That there was this default setting that happens that plays out with the brothers. But I, I was like, where, where does that come from? Where does a guy who's sold into slavery and for 20 years lives in a foreign land has to learn their language and their customs, where in the world does someone like that have the faithfulness to continue to trust God even when everything else is falling apart. To have the confidence to say, no, I know that you tried to destroy me, but God used it for good. Where did he get that from? And here's what's incredible. Genesis 31. Go back to Jacob's past. Jacob is now uh, married, multiple wives, is working for his uncle Laban. Laban um, is a shepherd he is a very successful shepherd, and he brings Jacob on as an understudy. Jacob becomes one of the most successful shepherds in the region to the point that the flocks continue to grow and grow and his workers continue to multiply. And Jacob becomes a substantial financial 
powerhouse to the point that it starts to affect Laban's business because Laban's other workers are starting to suffer because he's dominating. And so what happens is there begins to be this tension, this frustration. Laban begins to, over the course of seven years, tries to swindle, um, tries to trick, tries to steal back the resources that Jacob has built. And so verse 31, I mean, chapter 31, we pick up on this scene. It says, and Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Because when Laban was watching the money roll in and the sheep multiply, he was like, this is really good. But now he's starting to watch his business suffer and Jacob's business climb. And so the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah. Rachel is the mother of Joseph. To come out to the fields where his flocks were. And he said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I work for your father with all of my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said the speckled ones would be your wages, then the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked one would be your wages, then all the flock bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. So here's something that's incredible. Joseph is six years old when this is happening. All of his brothers are far older. They're all into their adult years. But Joseph is six years old. He's the favorite son, which means he's always with his father. So Joseph learns to trust God when circumstances aren't going his way. Not because he invents this while he's in bondage and slavery in Egypt. He learns it by watching his father. But the thing about Jacob is that Jacob and his life story was not always filled with this devotion to God and this trust in God. Jacob has a moment and an experience with God that reorients him. And in the midst of that reorientation, Jacob starts to redefine even who he is. He changes his name to Israel, which is a direct tie and connection to God. And in the midst of his name change, there's a reorienting, a reorientation around Jacob's life and values. And Jacob begins to do with Joseph what he did not do with the other sons. He begins to define some family values. And the way he defined it was what was communicated and what was demonstrated. Again, I don't have all, the, I don't have time to rush through the verses, but if you were to go from 31, 32, 33, and you were to track along the, the kind of the chronology of what's happening here, what you find is that Joseph watches from the best seat in the house at the very back of the caravan, he watches reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. He sees brothers reconcile. He, he watches his father wrestle and struggle with his relationship with God and come out of, in a place where God is one of the most important things in Jacob's life. And all this is happening, all this is being communicated and demonstrated in front of the eyes of a six-year-old boy named Joseph. And where so many default things had been done, this is one of the areas where Jacob made a decision 
to define what his family was going to look like. Specifically, the six-year-old, he still had influence over. And where this gets practical is that for many of us, maybe you grew up in a household where the conflict resolution did look different than what you, you desire. You, you're like, I don't want what I lead or what I'm part of defining. I don't want it to look like a bunch of angry people yelling. I don't want my kids asking me and my spouse what I ask my parents. Is everything okay? Do you guys still love each other? Are you going to stay together? I want my kids to see us handle conflict in a, in a way that's healthy. Or maybe you didn't grow up with family traditions, and you're like, you know what, I, I want to go on special family vacations. I want to give my kids memories, because that's what they carry into their future. I don't remember the toys, but I remember all the things we did together. I want to give my family traditions. Or maybe it's just simple as, I didn't grow up where we ate together regularly. And I want us to eat together three, three nights a week. I want our family to sit around the table and just talk. It doesn't have to be significant. It can be small. But here's the thing. If we don't replace it, we repeat it. And this is one of the areas where Jacob said, I'm not just going to repeat my mistakes. I'm going to replace it and make God a value. And while I can't do anything right now about the other guys, I've got Joseph. And I can start where I am. And so how do you do that? Let me give you three questions. Because it's easy to read their storyline and say they are crazy. Right? To see all of this mess completely kind of objectively written. And we don't have time machines. We can't hop into the future to see what our storyline is going to look like. To come back and say, oh, that's got to change. But there is a way that we can get a glimpse. You see, reading history is one way of kind of understanding the future. Another way is actually trying to create it. And the way that you and I can create the future family dynamic is... Um, through three questions I want to give you. And these are loaded questions. These are not questions you're, you're going to fill out today and be done with. These are questions that are meant to kind of go inside of you and only come back out if you've got the courage to do it. The first question is, what do you want your family or your business, maybe the group that you lead at your workplace, what do you want it to look like? That's the first question. And it's in the, the sermon notes there for you with some space to process. What do you want it to look like? Because if you don't know what your family, if you don't know what your family, work, group, dynamic, if you don't know what you want it to look like, you'll never know what you're aiming towards. And you're going to repeat what you've done. And if what you've got in the past is great, then fine. Maybe you get lucky. But what we don't replace, we repeat. And this question's meant to, to begin to help us to replace what we want to go to what we want to work towards. The second question is probably the most intimidating one. So the first one's about where you want to go. You have to have two points of reference when you map out a plan. You have to know where you want to go and where you are. So I'm going to give you the most terrifying question you'll probably ever ask anyone, but this is a question that will change your life. And it's to look at the people in your lives, whether you work with them and that's what you want to see change, or whether this is in your relationship with your spouse or maybe potential, um, or this is in your marriage or in your current family now, you say to them, hey, what's it like to be on the other side of me? You see, if I want to say that what, what marks our family is the way that we peacefully resolve conflict, and that's where I want to work towards, 
I've got to ask the people who have conflict with me, hey, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And if they say it's terrifying, it's loud, it's scary, then you're like, oh, well, I guess I got a good idea then. I don't have a current description, though. Because what happens is we tend to live with a very rosy picture of who we are. That's why you can't ask yourself what's it like to be on the other side of me because you don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. But your spouse does. Your executive assistant does. The nurse you worked with, she does. The person beside you in the cubicle, they, they know. And we have to be brave enough to ask, hey, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And then the final question is this. What's one thing I need to do to shrink the gap between the two? Because what you're going to find as you start to process through is there's going to be a gap. And that gap is going to feel overwhelming. And the way you focus is not by trying to repair the entire gap, but it's to pick the one thing that you value the most. And like I said, I knew I was covering 60 years worth of a storyline and unpacking a lot of things. So here's what I've done to help you. On our Facebook page, okay, facebook.com backslash Encounter Church, um, right now it is currently live. There are two resources that we've put there. First is um, some questions I pulled out of the seven habits of highly effective families. Okay, you don't need to read the book, but there are some great questions to guide you to help stir up conversation. So the next time you're on a road trip, next time you're, you're on a date, next time you're hanging out with some friends or at a lunch break with some coworkers, you modify the questions a little bit and just ask a few. Really insightful. The, the second resource is probably one of the best books on organizational culture, and it's called The Advantage. And I just put a link to that on Amazon. It's a book that you should read if you're really curious, how do I flesh out family dynamics, this, this whole concept, into my workspace? Because in the same way that your family dynamics will have impact on you and your family, that culture, that operating system will have significant impact and how you do business, too. And it's a great resource to help prime and process some of the teaching from today. But here's why it matters. is because our lives, in so many ways, are exactly like being in the middle of a canyon and screaming hello. Right, my daughter has recently fallen in love with this idea of an echo. She just likes to find places where echoes are, and she screams, and she waits, and it's hello, hello, hello. She loves it. It's the coolest thing ever. But our lives do the same thing. But they don't echo back in sound waves. They echo through the lives of people who go beyond us. We're currently echoing the decisions, the priorities, the defaults, and the desires of those who came before us. The way we parent, the way we interact with conflict, all of those are the echo of lives who've gone before us. People that we may have never even met who echoed through this life, who echoed through this life. And there's a, a, a pastor who was one of the most prolific and most famous authors in the 1600s, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, who unfortunately his, his legacy in the, well, not even academic realm, he's got far more extensive legacy there, but for most high school students, his legacy is a, a sermon he wrote called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, okay, which completely kind of distorts and clouds who he really was. Um, so, if you were to dig into Jonathan Edwards' life, which I have, that was 
one of the people I studied in my, in my doctorate. Um, Jonathan Edwards is this incredibly fascinating man. Um, he's, he has more claims on dissertations written about him than probably any other person um, in American history. Um, he is considered to be one of America's first and greatest philosophers, theologians, profoundly brilliant man. But the thing about Jonathan Edwards that stood out to me was that when Jonathan Edwards was in his 20s, he set aside time to write out what became known as his resolutions, his decisions, about what he wanted his life, his work, and his future family's life to look like. And in processing those resolutions, those became kind of the guiding stars of how he, he lived life. And what happened out of Jonathan Edwards is that you see this resolution have a ripple effect. And let me tell you what one historian said about Jonathan Edwards and the family members he left behind. As members of this astonishing group speaking about his family, we find that out of his lineage came 10 college presidents and universities from Amherst, Hamilton, Rutgers, Union, two went to Princeton, three would lead Yale, Johns Hopkins, Columbia, um, the Carnegie Institution, um, which would become Carnegie Mellon, um, University of California, Besides these, there are founders and presidents of two different law schools, two presidents of theological seminaries, one of a large kind of medical um, group, one of the Boston Society of Natural History, a bank president, a president of three railroads, one vice president, and one president of the United States. That's what came out of his family lineage. And so much of it was, an attest was a testament to the decisions he made as a 20-year-old to establish family defaults, that he, their families were really fortunate. They didn't have to change a lot. They rode a wave that their great-great-great-grandfather started as a small ripple in a pond. And here's why it matters. Is that generations from now, people will be standing on the ground that we created by the decisions we made to say, I'm not going to repeat I'm going to replace. And that our future grandchildren and great-grandchildren will do and act and say and live in a way that stands out from the crowd because their great-great-grandmother or their great-great-grandfather decided something today that rippled decades, centuries down the road. And that God has allowed us, He has created this thing called family and this family dynamics so that we have a choice in our generation to do something different than the generations that came before us. To take what's been given to us that's a gift and multiply it. And to take those things that have been destructive or damaging to our family line and replace them. And give the next generation something better than we have. That's the beauty of why future family makes a difference. It's because we are deciding today what our future family will look like tomorrow. Let's pray.